You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome. 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 To the Freedom Pact. Today on the show, I am delighted to be joined by Jamie Wheel. Jamie is the executive director of the Flow Genome Project. Jamie's latest book is Recapture the Rapture, Rethinking God, Sex, and Death in a World that Has Lost Its Mind. Jamie, I'm really, really excited to speak to you today. Welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me, mate. Such a pleasure. So before we jump into your book, um, I want to kind of ask you a broad question. Um, I was kind of, we asked our, uh, our Instagram audience, what do you want to know? And I think that a lot of people are kind of feeling quite fatigued about the last year, particularly here where I am in the UK. Now, COVID is kind of sort of coming to an end. We've got our own Freedom Day coming up. So I would love to know, based on 2020, 2021, what was the biggest lesson that you've learned in the last year? <laughs> well, this isn't a cheery one. Um, it's that if this is our dress rehearsal, we thoroughly shat the bed. <laughs> That's not good. <laughs> no, I wouldn't say it's encouraging because, you know, we always hold out hope, you know, for the last decade plus, you know, every Ted talk or anything like it has gone into a sort of predictable form. I mean, really from sort of Al Gore's inconvenient truth onwards, although there was, you know, this, you could trace this all the way back to the seventies, but it's doom and gloom, doom and gloom, scare your audience shitless and then go, but friends and neighbors, there's still, there's still hope if we act now. Mm. Right. And, and we've, we've gone through all the, if we act nows. And in fact, there was just a recent uh, KPMG study. I mean, not, not directly affiliated with KPMG, but it was one of their senior managers, but then they presented it within the organization as well revisiting the MIT early 70s um, limits to growth club of Rome predictions on you know exhaustion of carrying capacity of planet earth kind of thing which at the time got the shit kicked out of it as you know neo-malthusian you know alarmist etc cetera, etc cetera. and they've just reassessed its predictions based on current data and it basically there were three trends i think there was business as usual which was straight off the cliff there was i don't quite understand their their languaging but it was com complete technology so some like fully automated space communism kind of thing. And then there was um, a path to sustainable growth, you know, sort of soft landing and we fix this. And the, you know, we're clearly nowhere near the soft landing and we fix this curves. <laughs> and the only two that have any correlation right now is hard landing, like just straight off the cliff, no skid marks, um, or some still kind of like, you know, techno utopian carbon sequestration, cloud seeding, geoengineering, do all the things, but we haven't invented the things that we would still need to do. And my strong hunch is that we're actually on the business as usual curve. We just haven't gone far enough along the timeline to see the divergence because even the Paris Accords, right, are, are still fundamentally focused on um, not only has nobody actually signed up for them or done much about them. <laughs> and not only are we already missing them before we even agreed to try, but even baked into them was all sorts of TBD tech breakthroughs to help us bend the maths. Um, so so that's, that's one you know, synection, which is 
do hard times prompt sobriety? And do we shake it off and then say, oh, okay, no, no, no more dress rehearsals. This is really the real deal. Let's get, let's get our shit straight. The kind of proverbial World War II victory gardens and FDR and Churchill kind of stuff, which we sort of have in our dim memories, you know, but it's getting increasingly dim. Or do we do the kind of absolute whack job fuck nuttery that happened in the UK and the US in the last four to five years. And we're now in such an epistemic collapse that no one can even agree on what shared reality is. So it just feels like a bunch of pound dogs scrapping and barking at each other in our, you know, shit stained prison cells. You're like, Whoa, this is not good folks. This is definitely not the better angels of our nature. You mentioned the cliff analogy. I wonder, first of all, I guess, do you think that we've gone off the cliff if we have, can we grow wings on our way down or are we just going to hit the water? It's like chitty, chitty, bang, bang. (laughs) Come on, motherfucker. Yeah, exactly. I sure hope this thing has a hydro, you know, is, 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 is a, is a hydrofoil and and has wings. Um, Well, look, I mean, I just, I just had an interesting and sobering conversation with a dear friend living in the interior of British Columbia. And for the last 15 to 20 years, he's, they've been on the absolute forefront of proactive, climate-informed forestry management. So it's one of the most pioneering programs in all of North America, actually. And they went so far as running you know, climate models, monitoring temperature shifts, moisture shifts, ecosystem shifts. They even did traveling tours to the rest of North America. They're like, okay, we're up at this latitude. We might need to start investigating what is the nearest ecosystem that we think we're growing into and can we start actively facilitating the transition of our forest into, and they they concluded that, you know, within a few decades, they're going to start looking and feeling more like Northern Utah, you know, so several clicks down on on, on the latitude uh, scale. And he is now, you know, and and obviously you've probably heard of like the heat dome and the crazy things, you know, 120 degrees in the interior of British Columbia, setting three records, three days in a row. And then the fourth day, the town just burns to the fucking ground. And, and this fellow, this, this forester, um, who's been doing this pioneering research is basically like, yep, I'm ready to sell everything. And I'm ready to get out of Dodge for the next two months. And if every, and, and if our entire homestead that we've spent 30 years on burns to the ground, there is no saving it at this point. And what we had forecast for 2030 is showing up in 2021. So that's just sort of real. That's not, you know, reading something in the Guardian and getting your knickers in a twist or, you know, or, or, or sort of, you know, getting all fired up by the next Greta Thunberg post. You know, it's just sort of, re, you know, just practical, very straightforward on the ground experience. Um, so my sense is, is we are in for a lumpy, bumpy landing. The question is, is, you know, is it, it at a minute, I would be very, very surprised if the wheels, if, you know, if the landing gear stays on. We might get to do a belly slide on the runway and, you know, and maybe end up in the grass, or it could just be straight fireball in. And that's going to depend on, as always, us. I would love to ask you about this because uh, very recently I took a break from social media. I took a pretty much about a one month cleanse um (laughs) it came to the point where you know to use the language of uh, today's kids i was getting triggered by certain things that i would (laughs) Mm -hmm. see online um and one thing that really struck out to me was that 
it took maybe about two or three weeks, but I noticed that the kind of inertia, the irritants that I had felt from these posts, these articles, the craziness, you know, the way we've lost our minds in this modern world kind of drained from my system after about two or three weeks. Mm-hmm. Right now, I feel that collectively there's a lot of global trauma. There's a lot of inertia. If suddenly we were to morph into a utopian society, how long would it take to heal from the uh, global trauma, from that inertia? How long would it take to get all that out of our systems? Mm-hmm. Well, um, I don't know if you've come across a book called The Ministry for the Future. I haven't. Um, I haven't. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good one. And it's actually Tristan Harris, who's another mm. sort of our shared mutual friends, recommended it. Um, and it's written by a top-notch science fiction writer, but it's basically real, you know, realistic near futurism. And he's also part of an X-risk think tank. So all of his scenarios are, are very evidence-based circa 2020. And he basically just maps the next 40 years. And, you know, it starts with a mass casualty heat death in India of 20 million people because wet bulb temperatures get above sustainable and then goes into them breaking the Paris Accords and cloud seeding because they're like, fuck you guys. Like we didn't create this, (laughs) you know, the industrial West did and we're suffering. So we're no longer going to toe the lines and do that. There's a rise of eco-terrorism that starts targeting private jets and commercial flights and big diesel shipping containers. And that sort of impacts the market. There's an introduction of carbon credits that sort of become the replace the dollar as reserve currency. There's the establishment of wilderness corridors. There's all sorts of all the things that you could imagine that would be possible sort of mapped and not in a Pollyanna-ish way, like lots of infighting and depression, you know, economic crashes and all sorts of things happening. Um, And it's not until in that model that I think 2035, that parts per million on carbon sort of dips below 450, you know, and starts actually showing signs of recovery based on, um, based on action. And, and I think the oceans take even longer. So at least in that, in his description, uh, my sense is, is that we could, I mean, this is bullshit conjecture really, because what I'm about to say is instantly falsifiable, (laughs) but we could heal ourselves culturally and then get to work on what is actually a longer arc of restoring ourselves ecologically. Now, the realities of that happening are slim to none because we've got, you know, superficial culture wars over silly, silly shit. <laughs> like Dr. Seuss, you know, and, and, and <laughs> u- university curricula and, you know, th- things that just simply don't matter in, the, in any l- remote scheme of things, which are purely distractive and the you know weapons of demagogues um but at the same time there is a pig in the python right there is no question about it even if we all became um buckminster fuller and and mother Teresa's illegitimate love child tomorrow, <laughs> right there, there's a massive hangover that we have to deal with that isn't going anywhere no matter what we start doing tomorrow um and so the question is 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 but but that said were we able to live in that utopian society of yours, right? If we stopped simply spending on weapons and marketing cheap plastic shit from China that nobody wants or needs and put all of that ingenuity and expertise and techno-economic capacity towards transitioning to sustainable energies, to ensuring food security, to pioneering energy efficient desalinization, you know, to stabilizing the bottom 4 billion 
uh, on the planet to extending compassion, care, and concern um, to all, to breaking the chokeholds of late-stage crony capitalism. To do, you know, can we? Could we? Do we actually have the capacity? We have the capacity in spades. Mm. We could absolutely, and, and the notion of like, you know, whether it's Elon and, you know, the, the current, you know, buzz on, you know, billionaire space races, it's like anything that we're trying to do on Mars, you know, you could do a thousand times quicker, faster, cheaper here on this paradise planet we were born on. And so our capabilities to do it are absolutely there. Our will and our coherence to be able to do it are still big, big, giant question marks. I love that point. And I definitely agree. I think that there's a credit card bill, which we've racked up, which eventually we're going to have to to pay off, as you say. Um, I was thinking about kind of where I perceive where we are, just from my own experiences of life, speaking to people on the show, in academia, in workplace. And it seems to me like, like in this era in particular, it seems like we've become very bad at having conversations. And because we've become very bad at speaking, we've become very bad at thinking. Um, I, I would love to know, why is it so hard to kind of have conversations these days? Because it seems to me like, I was thinking about this the other day, that an alien life form, I can't imagine that they would be as emotional or as tribal and as <laughs> as complicated as, as humans are. Um, wh- why have we become so bad at, at speaking and communicating these ideas? Yeah, well, I mean, like, I'll, I'll take a, tangential cut at this and normally i just steer well clear of politics because it is just such an irredeemable shit show um Mm -hmm. but i'll I'll stick my neck out to make a point which is that i think four families on the planet earth have done more to break western civilization than perhaps anybody in history and that is the Koch brothers the murdoch family the trumps and the kardashians Right. So we'll just take them one at a time. So the Kochs, if you don't know them, it's K-O-C-H. Um, they are an, a hard right, ultra libertarian pair of billionaire brothers uh, in the Midwest of America. And for the last 30 years, they have been responsible for seeding and propagating all sorts of anti-democratic um, astroturf, you know, pseudo grassroots movements, including standing up the Tea Party, um, which has now become a Frankenstein's monster that monster that then morphed into MAGA and, and Trumpland. And they have been as cynically as I can ever imagine, just looking to thwart and dismantle everything from public transportation initiatives to independent agriculture to democratic, you know, school boards and everything like, like, and a sustained, incredibly well-funded campaign for three decades. So while liberals have been, you know, bickering over their fucking pronoun usage, (laughs) these guys have just been digging under the foundations of democracy and then the beast they created got away from them and i think uh one of them i forget which what one of them died so i think this is probably charles Koch, after yes. january the 6th after the capital riots they were right around then basically stood up and on the record said hey whoa this is going too far this is sort of not what we meant as the puppet masters of the universe you know the beast that we've we've, we've ginned up is now getting away from us we wanted libertarian deregulation, no taxes for the, you know, for the upper class brackets. Like we had an agenda. You guys, you, you the mob in the street um, has lost our fucking, lost their minds and uh, along with it, our interests. So they're getting a little concerned that they might get cut down too in, in, in the bloodshed. So that's one. And then um, 
in, in hand in glove with that has been the Murdoch empire. And I think a couple of years ago, there was a pretty exalt, I mean, just in the crazy noise of our current media cycles where, you know, the two year in the making Mueller report gets lost in the news cycles because William Barr sits on it for 14 days and then tweets out his conclusion of like nothing to see, Trump's exonerated. And then somehow the 14 days is up and then journalists get to actually read the real paper and are like, whoa, 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 there's all sorts to see here. This is insane, but somehow the news cycle had moved on. Well, you know, in addition to that, the New York Times finally getting hold of Trump's tax records and no one really kind of bothering or caring by the time they're actually out. And there was another, another deeply investigative piece that they did on the Murdochs. And they, 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 they sort of looked at their role buying media properties in Australia, the UK and the US. And every single time they did, the electorate skewed 17% to the right. So they were absolutely a captive propaganda engine in those markets. And of course, you know, all the other studies that show that if people are getting their news predominantly through a Murdoch property, they are the least factually informed, right, of any segment of the voting populace. Now you take this back to Thomas Jefferson and James Madison and George Washington and all that, and they were, they were deeply concerned and skeptical of an uneducated populace having the right to vote. And there was this sort of civic responsibility to be informed. Now, newspapers and propaganda have existed since those times, the Federalist Papers and the, slick, the slagging each other off in those early elections. It's not, it's not new, but the degree of pervasiveness and misinformation and the collapse of the fourth estate. So rather than that being the check and balance on three branches of government now becomes captive and state media effectively, like that was a huge breaking and shearing. And of course, without Fox, you don't get Breitbart, you don't get OAN, you don't get all the absolutely wacky ass far right media properties either. Like, like, like they created that ecosystem. And, you know, and then, you know, it pains me to have to mention his name. It's like Voldemort, but like, like there is so much psychic tearing in the body politic and in our collective consciousness right now. And large amounts of it have sprung from um, a malignant sociopath and narcissist holding the highest office and the most powerful empire in human history. And normally, you know, great man of history models tend to overplay, you know, that is it Hitler or is it Martin Luther King or is it, you know, whomever, you know, and most social historians are like, oh, no, no, these are times and places and movements and people, and it would have been someone if it wasn't that particular person and that kind of thing. But I think in this case, um, you can make a case that almost every psychic tear and pathological reaction we have right now is, is the result of something going wildly wrong, like the Access Hollywood tape, right? You can grab women by the pussy and get away when you're rich. You can get away with anything you want. And that motherfucker not having his career torpedoed as would have ever happened any other place in time, but in fact gets elected to the White House, creates this psychic tear, and then you get Me Too. And you get not just me too, which Clinton, Harvey Weinstein wouldn't have done it without, you know, without, without Access Hollywood, right? You would have had like good riddance to bad rubbish, Harvey Weinstein, you suck, you know, but you wouldn't have had me too. And, and crucially, what you wouldn't have had was the yes, all men. You wouldn't have had that sense of abandoned due process, abandoned innocent until proven guilty. It is time for retributive justice, right? right. Because of the, the imbalance. The same with the same with the Mueller report and Russia, the idea that, wait, 
conservatives, you know, you think back to the Reagan era, you think back to the Rocky movies, right? Arch villain, evil empire, right? And, and conservatives, their entire identity was in ad adversarial position to the Soviet Union. You've got the guy from the KGB running it, and now he's our best friend. And you're like, what's that? And then you get Mueller, like everyone's like, wait, this is crazy. This, what has happened? This election didn't go the way it's, but there's all these kind of weird signals. What's happening? Ah, here's Johnny Law. This is like Cary Grant, John Wayne. He's a, he's a Republican. He's a G man. He's, he's justice. Like he's the sheriff with the white hat. He's going to look into this and he's going to tell us what's actually going on. Two years later, the motherfucker just sort of disappears with a murmur at the end of that report, and everyone's like, wait, did he get Alzheimer's? Is this like, is this like watching The Godfather and somebody got to his kids? Like what <laughs> happened, right? And, and then you get Jeffrey Epstein and you're like, wait, the royal family and two US presidents deeply implicated, not like glancingly, not like an initial in a black book, but like repeat, repeat exposures. And the motherfucker dies in jail and wait, his gods were asleep and there's no camera footage just happened to be that night. So that creates Save the Children. That creates pastel QAnon, right? You don't get some dark satanic global pedophilia conspiracy without the fuel of what the fuck happened with Jeffrey Epstein right? and, and, and his connections at the highest levels of power. So you can, and you can move through this. Right, rhinos. The fact that Trump has basically done an Orwellian flip on both fake news. He is the most he is the most documented factual liar, probably in modern history and political office, and yet has weaponized fake news. I'm not fake news. You are, and keeps saying it often enough, Goebbels style, that it becomes the truth. Mm. And then he also has been pillorying actual conservatives as rhinos. Republicans in name only. And you're like, wait, no, you're a Republican in name only. You're a fucking demagogue and a populist. You have, you, you spend like there's no tomorrow. You don't, you, you've completely upended realpolitik, NATO, you know, global treaties. You've completely just blown up the entire post-World War II American strategic position internationally, trashed the entire Tea Party platform of fiscal responsibility. No one seems to notice, mind, or care. And yet your tarring dyed-in-the-wool National Review, William Buckley, you know, conservatives as rhinos. And oh, by the way, we've got a global pandemic and it's time for us to rally together as a national response and, and be the nation leading the world. And in fact, we're gonna say there is no federal response. And in fact, you all, all you states duke it out among each other, which is crazy. And then, oh, by the way, we're gonna actively and explicitly favor the states whose governors kiss my ass. And I will even say that. I will say that publicly too. And you're like, what? So, so each, of those, right, each of those have been splinters in our minds. And every single time those have happened, and then at some point, like the mainstream media just lost their mind. They're mm. like, oh, this is asymmetric warfare. So you get the New York Times, you get, you, get M you get NBC, you get all sorts of CNN, you get all sorts of people now abandoning their due process, abandoning, abandoning their journalistic ethics, abandoning their right of response or reply, abandoning their fact-checking and rigor, because they are just like, I'm just getting my ass kicked by somebody who's taking all kinds of cheap shots. And, and this is actually you know, this is material. This isn't just hits to our ratings. This is the, the fate of the Republic, children in cages, you know, rapists and druggists as immigrants, like, like, never mind. you know, the fact that Stephen Miller said, we're actually gonna rewrite the poem on the bottom of the Statue of Liberty. 
it was basically like, yeah, no, that whole tired, poor, huddled masses thing, sentimental, but not true. And in fact, we'll only accept the ones from Northern Europe who can, who can afford their own health insurance. I mean, that's a, that's a condensation of a couple of public points, but right, like you're like, what? So, so all of those created a, what is known in psychology as a schizophrenic double bind, right? Which is basically, it's a child who gets abused and then coddled by their parents. You know, like, like in the, at night I'm drunk and I, and, I, and I knock you around in the morning, I put you on my lap and I stroke your hair and say, it's only because I love you so much. Right. Right. And you, those, are the, those are the grounds that create schizophrenia. And so there is no sane middle ground. So people are either collapsing into individual isolation, despair, cynicism, or they're locking onto completely factually, factually challenged counter narratives mm-hmm. like QAnon, like anti-vax stuff, like any of these things where the good guys are the bad guys and the bad guys, bad guys are the good guys. And now the left, the progressive left is now leaning on the NSA and the FBI and the CIA as the good guys to help us against the bad conservatives. Like that's never happened. <laughs> you know, like lefty progressives have, you know, and even the, the schism of the Capitol riots, you could see it within the conservative realm. Half of them are saying, fuck yeah, we took the Capitol. And the other half are saying, we would never do such a heinous thing. That must be Antifa. It's a false flag operation. So even you even see the schisms within sections. So those are the those are three we've done. We've done the Koch brothers, the Murdochs, the Trumps, and that was a unfortunately fairly chunky one there. Um, and then the Kardashians. Kardashians, yeah, I'm excited to hear this one. <laughs> well, well, if you think you know, if you if we go back in the wayback machine a decade, maybe it's a little more now, but like like Paris Hilton, right, right was right. ridiculed for being famous for being famous. Right. That wasn't the first time that phrase had been used, but for sure it stuck to her. And if you think about it, she was the heiress to the largest, you know, most recognizable hotel fortune in the world. So she was actually kind of famous for something, you know, Um, but, you know, released a sex tape, did all the things, blah, 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 gets a reality show. And, And she was vilified for being of no substance. And then her assistant her little old assistant right, releases a sex tape or more to the point with her mother coordinates and strategizes that then shops it. And what was the subject of ridicule a decade ago? Now, then you get the generational thing and then you get Kylie and Kendall and now they are bona fide celebrities and billionaires. And you have an entire generation that has gone from, I need to make my way to earn my place to do the to do the hard things to simply you know i think 37% of gen y surveyed were saying i i want to be a youtube celebrity and it was like 6% wanted to be lawyers doctors and journalists and those kind of things and so that sense of we're now getting you know absolute style over substance absolute digital narcissism encoded and 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 reinforced and the fact that that is no longer considered embarrassing it's considered aspirational and actually even the best path to the good life has thoroughly kind of warped and distorted any form of civic civic balance right that idea of like i'd like to be a pillar of my community i'd like to be respected and loved and appreciated i'd like to be useful and of service or even i'd like to make bank you know in the system has all just been obliviated by anybody can be an expert, front it before you've got it, 
you know, let me Airbnb a mansion and rent a Lambo and shoot my videos and flog some other, you know, great <laughs> fool behind me. <laughs> a book of day. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're just like, oh, this whole fucking thing is broken down. Right, right. It's a collapse of grand narratives. We've, we, all the grand narratives, the things which we had before organized religion, the meritocracy, uh, the American dream, it's all collapsed right in front of us. Seems to it. I mean, you could just say these are the wages of sin, and these this is the last gasp of late stage capitalism. I, you know, I, I mean, I think that there's plenty of sort of post mortems on it, um, but it would it does seem to me that we are fairly divorced from core civic and psychosocial fundamentals at this point. Um, I. To go back to your book to kind of tie all this that we've been speaking about together, um, I've read a lot of books this year. I really, really enjoyed reading yours. Uh, the book is called Recapture the Rapture, Rethinking God, Sex, and Death in a World that Has Lost Its Mind. I'm going to put a link below if anybody wants to check it out. Um, and before this, it was quite aptly timed because a friend of mine sent me an article this morning from The Times. I'll also link it below. And the article was called why mathematics is racist and I, you know just the kind of title of your book the subtitle i can't help but feel like the world has completely lost its mind <laughs> what has caused us to do so yeah well i mean you know at least the way i lay it out in the book is with the notion of meaning 1.0 being traditional and organized religion, which for you know 99.9% .9 of human history was how we oriented to who are we, where are we, why are we? And obviously, you know, everything from the Catholic church, uh, you know, to decrease in church attendance to the rise of the spiritual, but not religious has all upended in the last even decade to the point where this is the first time in history where more people aren't affiliated as believers of some established traditional faith than are. And if you think back in the day, that was a death sentence. You were an apostate, a heretic, a pagan. You were right. something terrible, usually devoid of civil rights and likely to get killed or imprisoned if you weren't a believer. So meaning 1.0, this organized religion offered salvation at the cost of inclusion, right? If you believed you were saved, if you didn't, you weren't. Right. And then post, you know, post European enlightenment, we kind of got this, you know, modern liberalism and not liberalism, like lefty, just liberalism, free markets, civil rights, property, all of those things. And, and that was offering inclusion at the expense of salvation, right? All men and women are created equal, regardless of race, color, or creed, like at least aspirationally. Um, but God is dead, you know, separation of church and state. We're not going to muddy, muddy those two things. And both have been collapsing, and especially again in the last decade, we've seen the rise of the, the, the nuns in, in spiritual affiliation, but we've also seen, especially in the last 18 months, right? I think if COVID did anything, it was nails in the coffin of global, secular, market-based humanism and the, the, and the markets that support them. And right. just any kind of, I mean, basically globalist has now become an absolute pejorative, N not a, hey, folks, we all need to realize our shared humanity and work together on this little blue marble globalism, <laughs> you know, which you would think we need more of than ever. It's become an absolute epithet 
of the WHO, the CDC, dark and sinister plots with Fauci, you know, and anybody else. And, it, and it's actually, you know, you see it in YouTube comments and you're like, oh, oh, shit, you know, and that's the rise of, you know, basically reactive ethno-nationalism. So into that vacuum, you know, you would, you know, you might think if you were just sort of modeling this on an academic whiteboard, that this would go the way that Christopher Hitchens, that Sam Harris, and you know others in the kind of new atheists would have said, which is, hey, you know, superstitious sky gods are dying. That's a great thing. You know, we're all moving into this rational, moderate middle based on evidence and reason and facts. And you're like, yeah, that's not happening at all. <laughs> you know, in into that, you know, sort of nature abhors a vacuum, but so does culture. And so as the kind of roof caved in on our shared consensus, which was somewhere between traditional religious values and modern liberalism, and they kind of coexisted because they, you know, the Judeo-capitalist, the, Judeo, the, Judeo, the Judeo-Christian Protestant work ethic-y thing, you know, Max Weber, the whole bit, right? Like they all, it all co-emerged, right? right? So they kind of, they were, they were, they were um, relatively compatible bedfellows, right? And as the roof caved in on that consensus, we're getting actually a, a vacuum that's pulling people to fundamentalism. So people are doubling down on even more extreme interpretations of traditionalist beliefs and extreme interpretations of brand new mutations like QAnon, or people are getting sucked into nihilism, a complete epistemic collapse, a complete sense of apathy and or anxiety and or cynicism and despair. And you kind of get fight club you know, like, let's just blow it all up or burn it all down. And so, you know, yeah, I would say that is leaving us um, bereft of landmarks, bereft of uh, both benign authority, you know, and that, and that's BBC, BBC one, you know, or the Queen's radio addresses or Walter Cronkite on the news, like somebody who will tell us, who will settle us down and tell us what the fuck is going on. So collapse in benign authority, but also collapse in divine authority. I mean, you've got at this point, not only do you have more people than ever, I think, in fact, I think that lapsed Catholics are the second largest religious affiliation in all of the United States, right? So you've got, so, so you've got people that have spun out and rejected the church, but now you've, all, you've also got the other thing going on where you've got increasingly fundamentalist conservative Catholics rejecting the Pope and rejecting Joe Biden and rejecting all sorts of things. So, so there's, there's no divine authority either that, is, that can speak with a unified voice of coherence between us. So yeah, I would say meaning 1.0, meaning 2.0, roof caved in, fundamentalism, nihilism, and the loss of both benign and divine authority have left us in an epistemic vacuum. So much I'm really interested in. I would love to kind of pick up on this um, divine authority kind of grand narratives which we've kind of discussed mentioned the new atheist hitchens and harris um i feel like a lot of people now are kind of pushing towards a humanistic approach one thing that i think about uh religion is that for it to to stand the test of time it must have been a socially adaptive strategy and i potentially could argue that one of the things that they gave people was it gave people a kind of code to live by kind of like a video game, do this, then this, then this, and you'll progress to the next level. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that we could live in a humanistic society or, or do we need to have grand narratives above us or will a humanistic society kind of lead to this inflamed, inertia-ridden culture which we're heading towards? Yeah, that's a great question. And I feel like I read a piece 
in the last month where someone was making the case effectively that a secular humanist morals is insufficient. And mm. it was kind of, you know, pointing to the 20th and 21st centuries examples, like, look, it's just, it's not, it's not binding enough, you know? And if you do need a sort of superstitious sky God, who's about to strike you dead with a thunderbolt, if you fuck it up, you know, maybe so, <laughs> right? There's actually, there's just a practical functionality to that. And, you know, I mean, Nietzsche took a cut at that, right? In, in Thus Spake Zarathustra, right? He, he famously said, God is dead. And everybody dead. remembers that part. But the next paragraph is the kicker because he's like, and be careful when you kill your gods, because when you kill your gods, you're taking them out of an entirely enmeshed system of morality, civics, and ethics. And when you whack the reason why, you actually pull the thread on the whole tapestry. And there can be hell to pay when you mm. kill your gods. So that question of is, do we have enough of a sort of binding energy, enough of a, a com, com, what's, what's the, I, I would say, a, I want to say compilation, but it's, that's not a word, but compelled to rise to the better angels of our nature. Do we have something that lifts us up? Um, because if we don't, like if you look at secular humanist morality today, at least for now, most loudly, we have the pathologies of wokeism. Right. Right. It sort of, it just goes down the slide to a sort of, paranoid neo-marxism neo and there's very little dignity in there there's an awful lot of of power and language games um but precious little heartfelt humanism to be found and and you're like okay well left you know out in the wild you release these neat ideas into the wild and that's what happens we didn't we didn't mean that <laughs> like that's gonna just destroy us from you know from from within so I think there is a question, um, and, and I've also, I've, I've had this, I've been chewing on this one quite a bit in the last couple of years, because if you look at, you know, on the one hand, there is an antinomian tendency to progressive movements these days, right? Like I, we don't want charismatic leaders. We're not willing to defer to anybody in particular to tell us what to do. And you can see this with the Occupy Wall Street movement. You can see this with Extinction Rebellion. You can see this with Black Lives Matter. And in each case, they've effectively no sooner have they got some traction and started to influence things that they've effectively just cannibalized themselves from within. Right. They've descended into infighting power struggles and fundamentally just, you know, almost kind of like Robespierrean reigns of terror, like just whoever's the tallest poppy is going to get whacked. And then as often as not, it's not like that one, you know, the king is dead, long live the king. It's usually that person gets whacked, the squabbling continues, and then the entire movement stalls out and ceases to have any social agency or impact. And so they just all end up becalmed or scuttled. And, and so, and yet, right, um, the most powerful social movements of change that we are aware of, um, like Gandhi, Mandela, King, right, did actually, in fact, have visionary leaders. And they played a critical role, which was to say, and, and each one had to sit on that precipice. They had to sit on that razor's edge, which was, do we or don't we? go do we go hammurabi or jesus right is it an eye for an eye or is it turn the cheek and and in each instance they said turn the cheek and their people weren't initially persuaded 
And in fact, that conversation of a retributive justice versus restorative justice was effectively the dialectic of their entire careers and life arcs. And in many of those instances, they were actually killed. Their lives were ended right, right by their, by their um, in, in Gandhi's case, and also in um, Itzhak Rabin's case, right after the Oslo Accords, right? And potentially in, Martin Luther, in, in uh, Malcolm X's case, who went from black nationalist to rainbow coalition, kind of stuff, the, they actually get whacked by their own people. They get whacked by like, oh, no, 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 we were backing you as long as you were, you were, you were advancing the interest of our tribe. But the moment you go for a pan-ethnic India, bam, Hindu nationalists capture us. The moment you go for rainbow coalition, not black nationalism, boom, potentially a nation of Islam, I mean, messy, complicated situation with, with, with Malcolm X, but still, you know, and the same with Rabin, right? It was, it was a Zionist that whacked Rabin for selling Israel down the river. And so you're like, fuck, this is hard. But without them, right, without an avatar to say there is a higher, better way, which is by sort of definition, like just developmentally, there are fewer people who can hold those higher perspectives, right? How do we have grassroots-based, decentralized social movements that nonetheless rise above the center of gravity of mob mentality and impulse because left to their own devices, mobs regress to the mean and the mean is mean. And so my thought, and I don't know how you do this realistically, um, but my thought is, is championing and spotlighting the infinitesimal courage. And that's actually Jordan Hall's term, right? But, but the idea of um, anonymous, faceless people doing the exceptional. And that if we can continue to showcase their stories, can we sort of almost charge up an avatar, you know, like, like in magic or like in Tibetan Buddhism, you know, where there's, there's an imaginal entity that you send psychic energy to, to create and stand up to the point where you can interact with it and learn from it. Can we stand up whatever, homegrown human, generally decent person, right? Super badass who actually is the, is, is the avatar of who we want to be going forward. I mean, it could be Stanley Kubrick's, you know, cosmic child in 2001. Fuck, I don't, it doesn't matter. It just needs to be inclusive, universal, and archetypal. And can, then we, can we seed it with the tales of ordinary people doing the extraordinary? Because without some North Star, we're stuffed. Right. Because bloodlust and revenge, I mean, here's the thing, people often think, like in some respect, I mean, I laid this out in the book, but it's, it's that what we're really seeing beyond the culture wars is actually a battle for the finite game versus the infinite game, right? And, and, and alt-right versus social justice would assume they are on absolute, you know, opposing teams, but they're not. They're both arguing for finite games, win-lose tribalism. And the global humanist project, the seeds of which were sown back in the Enlightenment, it's been a bugger up ever since, you know, but it was a brilliant idea and maybe the best one we've ever had. And maybe the only one that could get us through this in, a, in, a, in an ethically palatable way, unless we really are just going to say, hey, 4 billion people die and it's not going to be our people. Right. Which right, is right. I mean, people are people are getting bent that way already. But if we're really going to say, hey, we take an a priori ethical stand for if you were born onto this planet Earth, even if we would really love to, even if we think we've got too many of us, even if we really you know, never mind, if you were born, you're a child of God and entitled to life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Right. If we accept that, then the question is, is how do we defend this this fragile 
tender notion of the, of the infinite game because it is not a fair fight in the marketplace of ideas. And I think that's where progressives are flaccid, lazy, naive, clueless as to what's actually at stake. Because we typically think, oh, we debate fair side, you know, fair reporting on both sides, all those kinds of things. And you know, may the best meme win. But it's actually asymmetrical mimetic warfare because all that you have to do to win if you're on team finite game is basically just bait or provoke anybody espousing a higher thing to say, fuck you, and I'm going to swing back after you've poked the bear enough. And then right. they've won. It's like Darth Vader egging Luke Skywalker on saying, strike me down, strike me down. Come on, be pissed off. Come on, I'm, I'm going to poke you. I'm going to prod you. And the moment you take a swipe at me in anger, the dark side is won. So I win even when you win. And so it's, meanwhile, the, the infinite game is like, you know, so, so Robespierre, I mean, again, poster boy of this whole thing, he said, you know, famously said in, in, the, in the reign of terror to justify, to make an omelet, you've got to break a few eggs, right? And so all the finite gamers have to do is smash eggs. That's it. And, but what the infinite gamers have to do, that everyone everywhere, if you don't, you, you don't look like me, talk like me, pray like me, but I am extending the same care and concern to you on a, the lifeboat planet Earth. That's putting Humpty together again. That is magnifying glasses and tweezers and super glue. And so, you know, the finite gamers have this, you know, second law of thermodynamics. They've got entropy on their side. And we regress under stress. So, so tribalism is destiny and humanism is optional. Mm. And I don't think <laughs> that that asymmetry has necessarily been fully or appropriately recognized or baked into anybody who's on team humans strategies at this point so so much good in there i would love to pick up on just a couple of things with what you said um you kind of mentioned that at the moment we're stuck between fundamentalism and nihilism i would kind of love to pick up on this and ask if we have lost faith in divine authority in certain things which you discuss what should we be putting our faith in Well, I mean, I'm, 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 you, you, can, you can kind of respond to that in a bunch of different channels. Um, I mean, one is, is for now, I think it has to be in ourselves mm -hmm. and it has to be towards our resiliency and self-sufficiency and anti-fragility. So in some respects, we are perhaps entering a period for the indefinite future and maybe forever where physics trumps metaphysics. Just what is coming at us requires us to deal with it and respond effectively or not in 3D. So I could be a knee-jerk libertarian. I could be a blockchain crypto enthusiast. I could be a conservative Christian or Muslim. I could you know, take your pick. I could be a devout QAnoner. And it sort of doesn't matter if the forest fires coming you know, coming for your house. It doesn't matter if there's no more water in the well or the reservoir. It doesn't matter if we're three days without a square meal. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't matter if the barbarians, the hordes or the huddled masses are, you know, at our gates, right? There's just reality is showing up. And now, it, and it matters far less for me to go, oh, I believe this forest fire was a careless lightning strike or a drunken camper or global warming, or is this correlation or causation? Or perhaps this is just a natural warming trend. I mean, fuck it. You know, it just doesn't matter. Mm. 
And if we're if we experience a massive market crash, right? Does it matter whether the libertarian is saying, well, what we actually needed was even more corporatization and deregulation? We, we, we had too little. We actually needed to really rip all the governors off. And meanwhile, you've got a, you know, a, 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 you know, a, a Nordic social Democrat saying, actually, we, you know, what, what this indicates doesn't fucking matter if there's no more money in your bank account. So I, I really believe that um, what we should sort of worship or what we should sort of value deeply um, will be shaking off the cobwebs and cotton wool of being deconditioned zoo animals and atomized consumers, all in our rational individual identities, primed and, and conditioned to believe that all of our needs are valid and just and need to be met tomorrow with two-day shipping. Or we throw a narcissistic tantrum. <laughs> you know, I think basic self-sufficiency and reliance I mean, you know, the stupid one would be you know, Bear Grylls, right? I mean, you just put a placeholder, like, do you know how to look after yourself? Do you know food, clothing, shelter, medicine? You know, uh, do, you, do you know the basics? And if you don't, you know, you are probably a zoo animal. And, and you, when that gate swings open, <laughs> you know, and the town is on fire and it's time for you to flee or stay in your cage, what are you going to do? What are you able to do? So that's a, that's a, a huge... Um, a huge bit of encouragement, but then, you know, the rest of the book, cause I mean, it does say God, <laughs> sex and death, right? It's the, it's only this, the first section of the book, choose your own apocalypse. That is about this kind of existential risk and cultural crisis. Um, and the middle of the book is fundamentally how might we, um, how can we reaffirm direct experience with the numinous, with some of non-ordinary state, potentially higher, access to information and inspiration and those elements. And my sense there, I mean, this is it, this cuts all sorts of corners and leaves tons of things unaddressed. But if you just go from saying, hey, organized religion is perhaps collapsing because it is hierarchical, bureaucratic, and there's just a fuck ton of middlemen and friction in the system. And basically, as Michael Pollan said, we've got nothing but placebo sacraments. So there's not actually compelling renewal. Like if I go up and drew the water and the wine, you know, the wafers and the wine, I don't get a flash of God consciousness, right? right? I, I just do it. I think, you know, it, it, it's the social thing. It's all the other things. So, so we've got placebo sacraments. We've got, we've got basically corrupt authorities, you know, in the sense of extreme wealth, pedophilia, you name it, right? Like they've lost a lot of that moral high ground and you've got an entrenched, middleman priest class, none of which lead to a vibrant self-renewing or self-perpetuating um, religious community or community of belief, right? So if you basically say, okay, now let's do a little neuroanthropology. How does one reliably connect to the numinous or the non-ordinary or the sublime? And if you look around the world across the last three, four, 5,000 years, there is a fairly straightforward set of protocols that can optimize a human nervous system to experience epiphany. And why not just share those protocols with folks, which are volatile. They're not, they're not without dangers and risks. They're, they're, they've been kept under wraps for very good reasons, but here they are now. We actually, 21st century you know, neuroscience and psychology, we know exactly how you get to the magic. So why not just say, hey, humans, um, go there. Right? Go there and see for yourself. Come back with a sort of a rational mysticism. If it, you know, this is probably the simplest describer of it, which is I don't 
start ginning up fantastical stories filled with magical thinking and new or different, you know, new or the same sky gods. But I do say, wow, fascinating access to information. That was really helpful or useful. And I try and bring it back down to the ground. And I engage in that form of check-in, renewal, healing, integration on a periodized basis, commensurate with my goals and lifestyle and responsibilities. And maybe, just maybe, that helps us be a little kinder, a little braver, a little more creative, right? And a little more cohesive together. Mm. I've got a quote in front of me of yours, which I really love. You say, seek novelty, make art, help out. Can you double click on this for me? Yes, but Tuppence in the swear box for saying double click. But yes. Um, <laughs> um, I was trying to be hip, all right? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, honestly, that was for me a, that was literally sort of a, a, you know, a post-it note written to myself um, for how to come back from looking over the screaming abyss, you know, because once you, once you really kind of deconstruct culture and socially define both senses of who we are, senses of where we're coming from, and you just kind of strip down consciousness, awareness, being, and the state of things, not just in a vacuum of like, what is it ever meant to be a monkey with clothes, but what does it mean right now, this, you know, like in this era, that's a lot, right? And typically when folks have peered over the screaming abyss, you know, there's only kind of two options, right? You, you either come back, you know, this is Robert Anton Wilson, but he's like, you either come back agnostic, like fuck if I know, or a madman. Right. You either go insane, which, you know, in Apocalypse Now, you've got Brando's character up the river, right? He has peered over the screaming abyss. He's realized that Western American morals is, is completely just flimsy. It's just a construct. And he's gone cannibal, you know, like, like, like Lord of Terror, Right. And the same with Heath Ledger's Joker. Someone's like, what's your plan? He's like, plan? I don't have a plan. I'm just a dog chasing cars, man. Right. Once you realize it's all fuck, it's all flimsy. It's all just pearl clutching morality as we whistle past the graveyards. Then you're either bent, you either go with the Nietzschean will to power. You're like, well, fuck it then. I'm just going to mess with the system because because I, I don't believe it's real, but at least I can exert some impact or, or entertain myself, you know, or you kind of go the potentially sort of, you know, bodhisattva route, which is just, okay, I've seen over the screaming abyss and I now accept that the only thing to do, I mean, this is in some respects, it's a transcendental existentialism, right? Cause I mean, Camus said, right. I mean, you know, post, post ruins of world war II, right. The French existentialist, I mean, I think they kind of get a bad rap actually, you know, because they basically said, look, it's all meaningless. Therefore, the only way out of that hellhole, right, is to actually make something, do something, be something, but make no mistake, there's no cotton wool blanket, there's no happily ever after, there's no baked in redemption. So go be, be a good human. And, and for me, shuttle running, you know, back and forth, I mean, this is a, you know, a self accepted or, or selected role. So I can't bitch about it, but, you know, kind of doing the scouting missions back and forth. They're like, what do I think is coming? Holy shit. That looks grimmer than anybody else is talking about, or at least more than a handful of people coming back to communities, coming back to public conversations and sort of feeling like, well, I cannot simply be freaked out and despondent. That's not useful. 
right? So where's the thread of hope, right? Because you, you know, in some respects, you have to metabolize that and you have to come back and be like, okay, it's, a, you know, it's the hours late and the stakes are high, but I think there's a way through and here's the way through. Um, and at times that gets too much. At times I'm, I'm like, fuck it. I'm just, I'm not seeing the way through. And so in those instances that I've just felt like flat on my back, what's the point, right? I just do that checklist, like seek novelty. Like we are hardwired to explore. We are hardwired to discover what's new and what's next to, to, to basically lean into the adjacent possible. And that's, you know, literally the level of like dopamine encoding, you know, and, every, and people are probably fairly familiar with this, but Sapolsky's work at Stanford and other places, which is, you know, you're rewarded for finding the honey or the bright berries or whatever it is, right? Or the, or the available mate and dopamine, right? But then over time that tapers, if you're just continuing to go back to the same slot machine and, and, then, and then you basically get, you know, up to 400% boost and reaffirmation when you go discover something new that is uncertain or unsure. So we are literally novelty seeking engines. And when our novelty seeking tapers, because we're in a working rut or we've been stuck in our house in quarantine or we're spending all of our time surfing social news sites or whatever it is and novelty you know, flatlines, our sense of aliveness flatlines with it and therefore purpose and therefore validation and being alive. So go see a sunrise or a sunset, watch a meteor shower, travel if we can, you know, learn to do something new, like just the simple obvious, but seek novelty and, and then make up, you know, we talked about entropy, you know, when we were talking about Humpty Dumpty and asymmetrical meme warfare, but there is also just the sense that, you know, the entire universe is spiraling down to heat, death and decay. Right. And, and whether, you know, or Shelley's Ozymandias, look on my works, ye mighty in despair, like, fuck, you know, the best laid plans of mice and men, right? All of it. So there is a sense of no matter how hard I try, nothing comes of this. You know, you're young, you're, you're idealistic, you're romantic, you get married, you settle down, you have a mortgage and children, you get spat out into late middle age, you're going to get old and die. What the fuck? <laughs> you know, like that whole kind of ennui of modern life can break you as well. The sheer futility of, you know, and then to get back to Camus, right? I mean, he said, and you have to imagine Sisyphus is happy pushing that fucking rock, right? You have to imagine he's actually got a reason. And I think part of it is because Sisyphus made pushing that rock his art. And, you know, and, and that idea of, um, I am going to do something. I'm going to organize matter in 3D against entropy. I'm going to make it more coherent. I'm going to make it more good, more true, or more beautiful so that I can look upon it and not despair. I can look upon it and say, I was here. I can look upon it and say, I made a difference. And art doesn't need to be oil paints, you know, or black and white photography. It could be planting a garden. It could be hosting a dinner. It could be raising a family. It could be writing the great American novel or anybody else's. It can, it can be anything that is increasing order, goodness, truth, and beauty. Just to simply say, look, left to its own devices, it wouldn't have done this. And I played a part. And between the novelty and the making art, those are, to me, they never fail as a diagnostic of why I'm feeling out of gas, despondent, under-motivated. I'm like, no, okay, yep, you're right. No question about it. I'm, I'm un either I'm trying, I'm distracted from the art I have to make, 
and I'm kind of pissing and moaning or I'm doing something else or I'm getting lost in more research or more doom scrolling or more bitching about the state of things or people or whatever, but just fucking shut up and go make it, you know, and novelty. And the final one of helping out is just if you've wrapped your head around those first two, share it, just share it. And, you know, yes, there's optimal psych reasons of like helpers high and justifications for how meaningful that is, but just be a good person and share it, you know, or the Bob Molly thing of my cup overfloweth and I don't know what to do, right? You're like, just go shine your light. Because if you're, if you're pursuing novelty and you're making testaments to the beauty of the, this, this experience, that's magnetic, that's attractive, and it's also deeply needed. So it could be anything from, I'm publishing a book or I'm exhibiting in a gallery, or it could be big brother, big sister helping, you know, orphan kids or working in a soup kitchen with a twinkle in your eye. Like there's a thousand and one ways for us to help. And all we need is to have the first two alive in us to be an embodiment or a metronome, right? That other people can align to and, and pick up the beat from. There's an awful lot of wisdom in those six words. I really want to thank you for sharing that. Um, I appreciate we're sort of coming to the end now. So I just want to ask you a quick fire questions, which we always blitz through. So today we were speaking about your uh, latest book, Recapture the Rapture. I can see a load of uh, books behind you. I can recognize a few of them. Which books have impacted your life the most, uh, Jamie? Hmm. Um, Stranger in a Strange Land, um, which is all about a, a human, um, I mean, fundamentally doing religion 3.0, right? I mean, he's, he's trained on Mars, but has yogic capacities. And it was a cult classic in the 60s. Um, probably Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, which was another key 60s book, but all about Ken Kesey and the rise of the Merry Pranksters. Um, and that whole sort of Wild West psychedelic movement. Um, most recently, um, I would say Alice, Alice Walker's Temple of My Familiar, um, which is fundamentally just an, 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 an epic on how to love through brokenness mm -hmm. uh, and how to transform suffering into joy. Um, most recently, um, The Ministry for the Future, which is a future casting book about the next 40 years. I found that really helpful. Um, yeah, I said that's, that's plenty to start with. My last question today before I kind of ask you to sign off and signpost these guys to wherever you'd like them question we sign off all our podcasts with is what makes a life worth living i mean i'm i'm thinking through anything that doesn't sound like a sort of pat cliche to try and get to the thing um but it's fundamentally sucking the marrow out of it and not dying wondering and i think what makes life worth living is to is to this isn't a tautology it's, is to realize that um life is worth living like rather than where i am right now isn't yet and that someday everything's gonna be different when I paint my masterpiece and I go off scuttling around this world, trying to accumulate what I think I don't have to actually truly come back around and say, this is the miracle, right? This is the majesty. And I am all in every day for 
the full catastrophe. I love that. I love that. Jamie, I want to pay my gratitude to you because uh, I loved your book. I love the work in which you're putting out. One thing I particularly appreciate is how you have the ability to uh, dissect very, very complex scientific studies, cultural narratives from across uh, an interdisciplinary of fields. And you've woven them into uh, a fantastic book. And I think people are really, really going to love it. So I want to pay my gratitude to you and for the work in which you've been putting out there. Oh, thank you, man. I appreciate you taking the time to check it out. My, my pleasure. Jamie, where can these guys connect with you? And uh, where would you like to signpost them to? Yeah, I mean, uh, recapturetherapture.com is the simplest place to go. Um, you can obviously buy the book on Amazon, do whatever, but there's also like free toolkits and th- you know, and guides and things that help you make sense of it. Um, and then for any of our community and our actual real world trainings, uh, flowgenomeproject.com. We're on Instagram, we're on Facebook, um, various places like that. Um, and and that just an encouragement is um, from what we've heard, feedback from readers is it's that much better to listen to the book on Audible uh, which I also got to read um, versus just having it as text because it just helps it it helps it go in. It's a very it, it's not dense in the sense of academic, but it is dense in the sense of ideas per page, um, and that can be a really helpful way for people to get the most of it. I love it, man. Thank you so so much for coming on the show. Yeah, man. Glad to be here. Fun fun conversation.